Hi, and welcome back to Jewish Thought Flow. This is your host, Mati Cohen. This week, we're going to be tackling a long-awaited topic, the chain of Kabbalah. This will be the history of Kabbalah. Where does Kabbalah come from? How integral is it to our Tarsh Peh? Was it discovered in the, you know, Middle Ages, or did the Tanayim, Amarayim have it? Uh, these are all questions that will be discussed in today's episode. So to start, we can get it quickly out of the way. Yes, Kabbalah is integral part of the Tarsh Peh. Now, where do we know this from? Where do we know that the Tarsh Peh has this hidden dimension? So this is found in the first chapter of Yechaskel, which described Hashem in very cryptic and physical terms. This is in the the famous Navua of Yechaskel, the famous prophecy of Yechaskel, the Maisa Merkava, the chariot of God. So this describes God in very physical terms, and as we know, God is not physical. So this already implies that we must have some sort of way of understanding this. Now the Gemara in Chagiga and Yudalaf and Mebez, the mission over there says, Ain darshin You can't be darish, you can't expound the ideas of Arias with three people. And not in Maisa we're going to define this term as the podcast goes on, but you can't expound the ideas of Maisa with two people. And the ideas of the Merkava, the chariot, you can't even expound with one. Unless he was a smart person who was also understanding in his so the Mishnah tells us we have a study called Maisa Baratius, we have a study called Maisa Merkava. Both of them have limitations upon how many people you can teach to. Maisa Merkava is the most secretive, can only be taught to one person, and that one person has to be of exceptional intellectual qualities. So where do these come from? Where do Maisa Baratius, Maisa Merkava, where do they come from? What are they? Why is there a difference? Why can Maisa Baratius, you can teach to two people, but Maisa Merkava can only be taught to one person? So the Ramban in his Akdama, Tis Perish on Chomish says the Gamkin Kol Hanamar Benevua Bemaisa Merkava Umaisa Bracious Vam Kulam Lachamim Vichalan Nimser Lamaisha Bene Bashari Habina Hakol Nechta Batera. So he says that everything that is uh, said over in the, the Nevuah of Maisa Merkava and Maisa Bracious and everything that was accepted to the Chachamim, everything was given over to Maisha Rabbeinu and everything is written in the Torah. So already we have that Maisa Bracious and Maisa Merkava was first of all given over to Maisha at Harsinai and is also hinted to and written in the Torah. Now, besides for this Mishnah, there's also a few Gemaras which reference Sisrei Torah, which means literally the hidden aspects of Torah. For example, in Psachim and Kofiotes, and in Chagiga and Yud Gimel. And the Gemaras, besides calling it Sisrei Torah, also explain that they need to be kept hidden, and only be given to Talmud Chacham, who has certain attributes. This is why they're called Sisrei Torah, because they have to be kept hidden from most people. Now, the Gemara in Yushalmi in Chagiga and uh, Parag Bey's Mishnah Aleph describes a certain Talmud who expounded in Maisa Merkava, and his Rebbe didn't agree with his understanding of Maisa Merkava, and the Talmud got punished with boils. And the Gemara in Shabbos in Payam and Bey's describes another student who also expounded in Maisa Merkava publicly, and he was stung by a bee, uh, and he died from that. So you see that Besides being called Sisera Terra, and besides being, you know, warned to keep it secret, there's also the Gemara describes punishments being given to people who are too loose in who they teach it to, and even to people who expound it wrong, because again, the people who are learning the Sisera Terra have to be the type of people who are intellectually ready to receive and give over this tradition and this system of esoteric thought. Now, the reason that they have to be kept hidden, these uh, systems of thought, Maisa Merkava and Maisa Baratius, is because they're very complicated, and most people don't have the intellectual and emotional capability of understanding these topics. Now, the reason that's so bad, even though, you know, people don't have intellectual understanding to understand halacha in many cases, but we don't hide that, but over here, 
when you misunderstand an idea in my Sabratius, my Samarkava, it can end up with the wrong ideas about Hashem or the Chum. Uh, the Rambam in his Akdam the Parish Mishnai says this explicitly. He says the reason why we keep these things hidden is because people will, uh, you know, read them and think that either Hashem is, you know, physical, because a lot of my Merkava and my Sabratius describe Hashem in physical terms. And another problem is that, he, possibly even worse than that, is that they may think that, of course, Hashem can't be physical. Therefore, the Chachamim who describe Hashem as being physical must have been fools, and they're, they're going to be making fun of the Chacham. The Ram actually says it in two different places, first in his Sakdam al-Perish Mishnais, and also in his parish to the fifth parak of Chagiga. And that's why you find in many introductions to different Kabbalah Svarim a warning, don't learn my stuff, or definitely don't come to any conclusions if you are not a worthy student of uh, this thought. If you're going to come away with the wrong conclusions, don't even touch it. It's not even worth it. Uh, for example, the Ramban in his Hakdama to his parish on Chomish. So he says, Anyone who looks into this book, You should not devise logical approaches, nor apply ideas based on logical thought concerning any one of all the Kabbalistic illusions that I'm going to write regarding the mystical concept of the Sisrei Taira. Because I'm telling you right now, with absolute certainty, that my words cannot be understood or known at all by just thinking about it intellectually or logically. It could only be understood by somebody who already knows the Kabbalah, somebody who's a Kabbalah an ear of an understanding person who's capable of receiving Kabbalistic knowledge. So there's really two parts to this. First of all, he has to be somebody who has already received the tools of Kabbalah, and he has to be somebody who is able to think for himself and apply it to different situations. He then goes on to poetically explain how coming about it through pure logic and, and reasoning without having a Kabbalah will lead a person to speak disgusting things about Hashem, and therefore it's better to just ignore all the Kabbalah of the Ramban unless you are a member of of the tradition. As you may have guessed, this is why we now call the Sisrei Torah, we call it Kabbalah, which literally means receiving, because Kabbalah can only be understood through receiving it from somebody who's already learned it. That explanation is brought by Rabbi Avram Avilafia, who is a Kabbalist in the uh, late 13th century, in his Sefer Echeshek. So with that introduction in mind, we can begin to trace the tradition of Kabbalah from Aishur Benu. Uh, we're going to take it through the Arizal, because after the Arizal becomes pretty simple, you know, where, where the Kabbalah, Kabbalistic train leads to today. So now, it has to be understood that Hashem created the world through a chain of spiritual worlds and levels, right? We have the physical world over here, but this physical world is a result of numerous metaphysical worlds and realms, each one getting progressively more quote-unquote physical until we get to this actual physical world that we live in today. Now, knowledge of these levels will allow us to attain a quote-unquote knowledge of Hashem because the more levels of spirituality which we're able to point to and say this is not Hashem, the closer we get to an understanding of Hashem. Obviously Hashem is beyond understanding because Hashem is beyond definitions, but the more definitions we can apply and the less worldly definitions we can apply means the more we can be shallow, the more we can cut out and say this is not Hashem and that, so to speak, allows us to gain a knowledge of Hashem. It's called a negative knowledge. Now this knowledge can't be intuited obviously, because how are we supposed to intuit what spiritual worlds there are? So Maisha was given this knowledge at Harsinai. Now, there are two ways of uh, perceiving these levels. One of them is through thinking about them and understanding them, and the other way is through actually almost seeing them. Now, that would be the level of Nevoah. So Maisha Rabbeinu, who was the greatest Navi, was able to reach all the levels pretty much up to Hashem himself, which is when he asked Hashem, can I see you? And Hashem said that no man can see me and live. 
Now, Misha gave over these tools of achieving prophecy to Yeshua, who gave it over to the leaders and the sages, leading to the era of the Nevi'im. Now, Medrash Tehillim, which is one of the Midrashim, which on Tehillim, says that the 11 Mizmaris, the Mizmarim, the 11 Psalms that Misha wrote, which was from Tzadi to Kut, from 90 through 100, which is 11, was Misha giving over the hints of how to achieve prophecy. The Medrash even asks, why weren't these songs, why weren't these, you know, Tehillim written in the actual Tyra? And the Medrash answers that Elu Diver Tyra, Vela Diver Nevua, because this is, a, you know, once Tyra, which is obviously Chomish, Vela Diver Nevua, but these 11 Tehillim, Kapitalach of Tehillim, were Diver Nevua. Vein Mafsigin, Vein Diver Tyra, Diver Nevua, and we don't want to conflate the two. Now, the Medrash in Vayek Raba, Perak Yod, says, all the Nevi'im had to receive their Nevi'im. Navim and Navi had to be a Kabbalah. So already we see this chain of Nevi'im that has to be handed from Navi to Navi. Started from Meishu Rabbeinu, handed to Yeshua, handed to Nevi'im, started the age of prophecy. Now again, the method of attaining prophecy is by contemplating these upper realms. These upper realms are the topic of Sisri Taira, of Meishu Merkava, of what we have as Kabbalah today. Now, the Ron points out in Drushes Ron Drush Ches, the eighth discourse, that each level loses a little because they're further away from the original source being Maishu Rabbeinu. Now, Maishu even gave a way of being protected from damaging forces while meditating on these lofty concepts. So, as we mentioned, these concepts are very complicated. And a lot of times when, you know, when we're thinking about it, when we're talking about it, it could lead to somebody thinking of Hashem as being physical. Because, again, the concept is, or Hashem being, you know, made up of concepts. Because what we're thinking about is we're thinking about the highest levels we can get before Hashem and saying that's still not Hashem. But it could be that somebody would make a mistake and say this actually is Hashem. That's obviously Kvira. So Moshe gave a way of protecting oneself from either going insane or having corrupted ideas. Now, this would be Tehillim Tzadi Aleph, which the Gemara calls Shir HaBegayim, or the Song of the Afflicted. Rav Haigayim, you know, one of the great Gayim, actually writes in a tshuva that this very Mizmar was meant to protect mystics from going insane when studying Mayas Merkava. Uh, this truth from Rav Haigon is brought down in the Hakaisev on the Gemar and Chagiga on Yudalid Ahmed Beis. So we have Maisha giving over to Yeshua, giving over to the sages, giving over to the elders, giving over to the Era, the Nevi'im, and then we get to the final Navi. The final Navi was Yecheskel, and he gave over his visions which encompassed all the levels. In other words, his Maisa Merkava was meant to give over a basic overview of all these levels that the Nevi'im were able to attain. However, he was not the only one to see these levels, obviously. In fact, you know, we see this is what the maidservants, even the lowly maidservants during Kriyas Yamsuf, were able to see what Yechaskel saw by Maisa Merkava. Uh, the Gemara in Chagig actually tells us that everything Yechaskel saw, Yeshaya also saw. And the only reason Yechaskel described in such great detail, while Yeshaya kind of is just like, eh, you know, whatever, there was, you know, something there, the Gemara explains is because Yechaskel was like a villager who saw the king and was amazed by every little detail, while Yeshaya was like a person who lived in the king's palace who saw the king. Yeah, I saw the king today. Yeah, he, was, he got a new haircut, you know? The Rambam in Marnevuchim in Chelek Gimel chapter 6 brings down two explanations. Either Yechaskel himself was amazed by everything he saw because he's never seen it, or his listeners who lived in Bavel were not used to hearing such things, so he described in detail for his listeners. But either way, what comes out is that all the Nevi'im were really seeing these levels, but Yechaskel was just the most amazed by it. Now, Yechaskel being the last Navi, again, is giving over everything that he saw of all these levels going up to Hashem, so that we can now learn it.
Although the era of prophecy is over, we can now study it and try to understand it. We can't perceive it, but we can maybe study it. Now, because of this discrepancy between perceiving something and understanding something, the Ritva on Sukkah Chavches Amit Aleph actually says that the Merkavahel Yaina Kadaisha, Shalainis Daklu Bunavim Eilam, Visaidi Dualabali Emes, that the Merkavahel Yaina, the upper chariot, that like the highest levels, the Navim were never even able to see. And its secret is only known to the Bali Emes. In other words, through thinking about something, you'd be able to reach an actual higher level than the Vim were ever able to perceive. This concept is brought down at length in Igris Kaidesh from the Alter Rebbe. In letter 19, it's also brought down Gurus Hashem from the Maharal in his Akdama, uh, the Preet Tzaddik, and in Devarim Yudzayan also mentions this. It's hinted to in the Barmanel and the Chavis Lavis. And this is really the concept of Chacham Adif Minavi, that a Chacham is greater than Navi, because a Navi has to be able to perceive the thing, while the Chacham is able to comprehend things without actually seeing it. And just a way to kind of understand this concept is imagine you spend your whole life studying about a certain you know town with you know beautiful views so you may know more about the views you may know more about the mountains you may know more about everything but you were not able to perceive it and therefore somebody who actually just takes a look at it in a way he has a greater appreciation for the thing but you definitely have a greater knowledge. So the Nevi'im had, because they were able to perceive it, were able to connect it on a deeper level. But the knowledge of the Sisari Torah can actually outreach what the Nevi'im were able to perceive themselves. So this is the beginning of the tradition of Maisa Merkava, and really the transition period from the Nevi'im to the Chachamim, who were able to now study Maisa Merkava, although they weren't able to perceive it, to the same degree that the Nevi'im were previously able to. Now, until now, we've kind of been talking about Maisa Merkava, and we mentioned that there's Maisa Merkava and Maisa Bracious, and the difference is Maisa Bracious you could teach to a few more people, while Maisa Merkava you can only teach to one person who is a Chacham. Now, the Rambam in Hilchas Yisaita in the first and second chapter, describes the basics of Maisa Merkava, while in the third and fourth chapter, he describes the basics of Maisa Bracious. His explanations of Maisa Merkava include, you know, knowledge about Hashem, while his explanation of Maisa Bracious is about the spheres and the malachim, which are the metaphysical, uh, kind of, well, semi-physical concepts, which, by which Hashem runs the world. Now, in Martin Vuchim, in his Akdama to the first Chelek, he explains that Maisa Merkava is Chachmas Elikos, is the wisdom, or kind of knowledge of God, while Maisa Bracious is Chachmas Ateva, is the knowledge of nature, or science, you know, but it's not science in the sense of physics or biology or medicine, right? So the Ron in his first Russian, also, you know, Rif Kreskas in RSM in the fourth Chalik in the 10th part, they both explained that if we were talking about regular science, there'd be no reason to hide it. It would actually be the opposite. You know, we're encouraged to spread science. There's no reason people can't learn physics. It's, you know, it's good for the world. There's no reason pa- people can't learn medicine. It's good for the world. But these sciences are describing natural phenomena and perceivable phenomena. What it's referring to is the metaphysical underpinnings of the natural science, that which cannot be perceived and only can be known through tradition or revelation. All science can do is say that material does this or that, but it can't say why things are doing it, right? That's what that's what the empirical sciences can do. It can tell you, well, this always does this, or the result of this is this, but it's not going to tell you why these things happen. By knowing the metaphysical underpinnings, you can explain why things will happen as opposed to just that they're happening. And this is at all levels of science. It doesn't matter how science, how deep science goes, it'll never explain why things are happening, right? You can say, Uh, This is happening because of this. But why does that happen? Well, maybe because of that. Why does that happen? Because of that. But at a certain point, you're just going to say, I don't know, it just works that way. The reason why it works that way is because of its metaphysical underpinnings, and that science will never be able to figure out. So that is my sabratious. My sabratious is understanding the metaphysical underpinnings of the physical world, um, understanding the nature of nature.
So the fact that every physical aspect in this world has a metaphysical underpinning is reflected in numerous Madrashim and Gemara. For example, the Gemara that says every blade of grass has its own malach, or the concept that every object has its sar, right? You have, you know, Asaph has its sar, the mountain has its sar, its, its officer, its angel. This concept of the spiritual underpinnings of the physical world is all described in Sefer Yetzirah. We're going to see more about where this Sefer come from and how exactly it was used. But it's through this knowledge of Mysabratius that the sages, the Chachamim, the Tanayim Amrayim, were able to derive any scientific knowledge that they wanted to. It was through understanding the metaphysical underpinnings. Now, this understanding is in the Torah. You know, it's hinted to in the Torah. Not all of us are capable, none of us are really capable of deriving it, but obviously the Tanayim and Amrayim were, and if they wanted to figure something out, they'd be able to look at the Psukim and figure these things out. This is why it's unanimous throughout our tradition that Shlomo Melech, for example, had all of his wisdom that includes all physical wisdom and all came from the Torah. It's also said that Maishu Rabbeinu had all this knowledge. Now, it's again, it's not just the more mystical Rishonim are saying this. This is brought down by the Rambam in his parish of Shnais. It's brought down by the Kuzari. It's brought down by Rav Sajigai in his intro to Kahelas. Now, this this does not mean that every single piece of scientific information was known by every single Tana or Amira. It just means that the capability or the potential to understand all of actual science is contained in the Torah and is derivable if one has the proper tools. Now, because the primary focus of the Tanaim and Amirim was understanding Torah in its halachic sense, and that was definitely what they were trying to give over, most of the Gemara does not contain scientific information, but the quotes and statements in the Gemara which are pertaining to scientific reality are to be understood as either true or Mashalim for other true matters. Now, although there's similarities between Mysabratius and Mysamerkava as both of them deal with the metaphysical, not everyone who knew one necessarily knew the other. For example, the Gemara in Chagiga and Yud Gimel Beis tells us that Rav Yasef, who knew Mysamerkava, had to be taught Mysabratius by Rav Yuda and Rav Ina, who didn't know Mysamerkava, but they knew Mysabratius. It was actually a really funny story because Rav Yasef asked them, can you teach me Mysabratius? And they said, sure, you'll teach us Mysamerkava. He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. They taught him Mysabratius and they're like, okay, now teach us Mysamerkava. And he's like, ah, I'm not sure you guys are, uh, are ready. I don't know if you guys are chacham enough to be taught Mysamerkava. So he ended up learning both Mysamerkava and Mysabratius while they were stuck with their initial knowledge of Mysabratius. So now we can get up to the tradition of Mysamerkava and Mysabratius to a certain extent through the Mishnah and the Gemara. So the Gemara in Chagiga and Yudalad Amad Aleph describes an incident with Rabbi Yechonim and Zakkai. He was a Tana of the first century and his student Rabbi Lazar ben Aruch. And his student asked Rabbi Yechonim and Zakkai, can you please teach me some Mysamerkava? He said, I'm not sure you're ready, and basically Rebelezer ben Aruch proved him that he was ready. So we see Rebbechim ben Zakkai, one of the earliest Tanayim, had this tradition, and Rebelezer ben Aruch received it from him. Right after that, the Gemara gives a brief stretch of the Kabbalistic tradition. He says that Rebbechim ben Zakkai gave it over to Rebbe Yeshua, Rebbe Yeshua gave it over to Rebbe Akiva, yes, that's the Rebbe Akiva, the, uh, the Rebbe of Rashim Bar Yochai, and Rabbi Kiva gave it over to Hananiah ben Chachinai. Rabbi Hanina happened to be a good friend of Rabbi Bar Yochai, who was the author of the Zer. And Rabbi Akiva, who gave over the tradition of Maisimar Kava to Hananiah ben Chachinai, was one of the Arba Nechnas Lepardes, one of the four people who entered the Pardes. Now, the four people who entered the Pardes were four Amoraim, ben Azai, ben Zayma, Acher, which was Elisha ben Abuya, and obviously Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was the only one who was Yatsa B'Shalem, and this is why the Gemara mentions them as being part of the tradition of Maisimar Kava. Now, the four people who entered the Pardes, this is four people who delved into understanding deep levels of Maisimar Kava. Now, obviously, here we see again the dangers of delving too deeply into Maisimar Kava because three out of four of them uh, didn't do too well. One of them went crazy, one of them died, and Acher obviously went off the derech, and Rebbe Kiva was the only person who left 
a better person. Now, another student of Rabbi Yechonim ben Zakkai was Reb Nechonia ben Akana. Reb Nechonia ben Akana wrote or compiled the Sefer Abayr. Sefer Abayr was another Kabbalistic work, which is, you know, we have it around today. And we know it was written by Reb Nechonia ben Akana because the Ramban, uh, numerous times, calls Sefer Abayr the Midrashe Reb Nechonia ben Akana. Besides compiling the Sefer Abayr, the Rajba tells us that Reb Nechonia ben Akana also composed the song or the uh, the the poem. Anabakayach, which is a you know a deeply Kabbalistic poem, which references one of the Kabbalistic names of Hashem. Now, Reb Nechunya ben Akana's student, Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha Kangadol, he was the one who composed Pirkei Hechales Rabtai. And the Kuzari says about him as follows: Umitalmidav Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha Kangadol, who Rabbi Shmuel Shalechales. Right, he was the Rabbi Shmuel of the Hechales. Va'karspan Umaisamerkava. Because he knew their secrets to the point where he was very close to the level of Navua. Now, again, this is that overlap between understanding Maisa Merkava and Navua and prophecy. And Rabbi Shmuel is also famous for being the author of the famous song by Avram Fried of Pamachos Nichnasti Kitoires. That's, uh, you know, another Kabbalistic story where he was able to actually see Malachim face-to-face. Uh, so this is, again, he's part of this tradition. He's he's the grand student of Reb Yechonim and Zakkai, the student of Reb Nechonim ben Akana, the author of the Sefer Bar. Now, the Hecholis, written by Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha Kangadol, is known as the main text of Maisa Merkava. That's what Rashi explains. And Sefer Yitzira was the main text of Maisa Bracious. Now, what is Sefer Yitzira? Where does Sefer Yitzira come from? Well, Rav Sajigain tells us it was the teachings of Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu knew Sefer Yitzira. He's the one who taught over these teachings in a tradition until it was finally written down at a certain point. Uh, many people say that it was the person who finally redacted it was Rebbe Kiva. For the Chida is the one who says that. So, for example, you have the Kuzari. This is in the fourth book in uh, paragraph uh, 24 and 25. Amar Hakizari, and he writes, "Asher terli maat mishyari achachmas ativiyos, asher marta shahayu etzlachem." So the Kizari told the rabbi, "I want you to tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, what's left of the chachmas ativis, about the natural chachma that you told me that you guys have." So Amar Chaver, mehem sefer yitzira. From these uh, secrets of the natural understanding of the world is sefer yitzira, the hula avram vinu, which was written, or you know, information came from avram vinu. Vu it's very deep and it's perishes long. Now, perhaps the most important text of Maisa Merkava, which we haven't mentioned yet, but is the, you know, is the Taira Shebechsav of Kabbalah, is obviously the Zara. The Zara is written by Rup Shimbar Yachai. And unlike Sefer Tzir and the Bar, which are very short and very cryptic, the Zara was written very comprehensively. Um, this is why it became the source for all later authoritative Kabbalistic teachings, right? Every... Uh, Kabbalistic master after the Zer was, you know, released to the world, pretty much exclusively quotes from the Zer. Now, again, even the Zer, if you don't have the training and the tradition of Kabbalah, is completely incomprehensible. You won't be able to understand any of the ideas, and you'll definitely come up with uh, ideas contrary to the truth, ideas that are harmful and damaging. Now, a question could be asked, right? So you have all these Sfarim coming out right around the same time. You have, you know, the Sefer Abayr, you have the Hechalas, you have the Zayar, you have Sefer Yitzira being, you know, finally written down by Rabbi Kiva. Question is, why is this all happening at this time? So anybody who knows history knows that at this period of time, which was, you know, around the second century, was right after the destruction and then right after the Bar Kokhba revolt, which was, in, you know, kind of the, the final blow to Yiddishkeit and Eretz And the tradition may have been lost. Uh, so when the tradition might be lost, we have permission to write down Tarashabal Peh, which is why 
within the next 150 years, not only these Kabbalistic Svarim were written, but also the Mishnah, Tesefta, Sifra, Sifri, and Yushalmi were all written slash compiled uh, during this period of persecution. So it should come as no surprise that the Kabbalistic writings are also being written down at this same part, because Kabbalah, Maes Merkava, Maes Abrashas, is just as much a part of Tarsh Pet as Halacha is. Now, besides for the difficulties in understanding Maes Abrashas and Maes Merkava, even when they're spoken, uh, you know, taught to, to students from a Rebbe, writing is inherently inferior in clarity, right? So in Martin Vuchim and Sefer Karm make this point, and I'll just read you the quote from Sefer Karm, which could be found in the third book in part 23, he says, Anything that's written, doesn't matter what it is, it's possible to be understood in two completely opposite ways, uh, to the point where it's possible that somebody can understand exactly what the writer intended, while the second person could completely distort it. And the Rambam in Marnevuchim explains that if this is what it's like in general, with Sisei Taira, which is why he explains that in the Gemara and Midrashim, the only references to Mais Merkava, Mais are through hints and little, you know, snippets and different parables. Now, while understanding Mais Merkava will give a person a greater knowledge of Hashem, understanding Sefer Yitzira will not just give a person a better understanding of the world, but he'll actually be able to manipulate the world by using different Shemais, using different uh, permutations of Hashem's name in order to effectuate changes in the world through effectuating changes in the metaphysical concepts underlying the world's physicality. So, for example, the Gemara in Brachas on Nunheim at Aleph 55a says that Betzalel was able to use permutations of Hashem's name in order to build the Mishkan. Uh, Rashi says that he was able to do this by using the teachings of Sefer Yitzira. Uh, Taisvis in Chagiga, Yod Aleph and Rebez, cites Rebbeinu Tamu, explains that Maisa Bereshis is the 42 letters from Bereshis through the following Pasuk. These 42 letters are mentioned in Kedushin on Samach Aleph and Aleph, where it says not to give over these letters except an exceptional person. And Rashi explains that we don't want people using it improperly by effectuating change in the world in a negative way. And Rashi on the Gemara of Adazariad Zion Medbez also explains that using these letters, one can do whatever he wants with the world. This is why the Gemara in Sanhedrin and Samach Hay Ahmed Bez says that Rava used to say that if Tzadikim wanted, they could create the entire world. And he himself was able to create a Golem, which is a, you know, a humanoid figure. Rav Hanina and Rav Aishia would create delicious steak every Arab Shabbos. Uh, again, Rashi explains that they did so using Sefer Yitzira. The Me'iri explains that this, using Sefer Yitzira, using the Shemais to create... Uh, changes in the physical world is included in the mutter category of magic, which is mentioned again in Sanhedrin on Samach Zion Ahmed Beis. Right? So over there, the Gemara says Amar Baya Hilchas Kshafim, the laws of magic Hilchas Shabbos are this, are similar to Hilchas Shabbos. Why? Because Yesh Man Beskila, some type of Kishav, some type of magic gets Skila. Yesh Mehem Pater Avlaser. Some of them. They're pater, you don't get punished for them, avalaser, but they're still aser. And some of them are mutter l'chila. And again, the Mary is saying that the thing that's mutter l'chila is using Sefer Yitzira. And the Gemara itself gives the example of Rav Aishia and Rav Hanina, who were able to create this cow on Erev Shabbos in order to have, you know, delicious food, using Hilchas Yitzira, which Rashi explains, obviously, Sefer Yitzira. He then explains that Ein kan mishum It's not considered a problematic form of magic because Because it's being done through Hashem's holy name, it's not considered a negative form of magic. The Gemara Yerushalmi in Sanhedrin, again, in Parag Zion, Mishnah Yud Gimel, also describes Rabbi Shua ben Hanani, who was able to create beautiful trees out of just squashes and pumpkins. Um, again, as we saw earlier, Rabbi Shua was the main student of Rabbi Yechem ben Zakkai in Maisam 
Merkaba, right? He was part of that chain, part of that four-person chain that Gamar mentioned. So he clearly had access to both Mysa Merkaba and Mysa Beratius. Now, what would a podcast on the history and chain of Kabbalah be without a little piece on the Zaire? So the Zaire is broken up into many different parts. Um, so the first Mishnah, the Mishnah Rishina, was written by Rishon Baryachai exclusively. The rest of it, you know, a lot of people think, okay, the whole thing was written by the Rajbi, and then they go, oh, there's some questions. So none of it was written by the Rajbi. The tradition is that there are certain parts that were definitely written by the Rajbi, but the rest was written just like the Gemara. Uh, it wasn't written by one person. It was written over a number of generations, but it was based on the teaching, teachings of Rishon Baryachai. Uh, the Zaire itself explicitly states that it wasn't all written by Rishon Baryachai. It was written over generations. Um, even the parts that were written by Rishon Baryachai were edited and affected by the upcoming generations until it was published in its current form in the 13th century by Ramosha de Leon. Now, where did Ramosha de Leon get it, and why was it published then? So the Chidan, Shea Magdalene, uh suggests a couple of different options. Either the Ramban was trying to send this manuscript to his son, and it got diverted and ended up in his hands. Um, other people explain that it was sent by an Arabian king to be deciphered or by Spanish conquistadors. Um, so there's different you know, positions as to how Ramosha de Leon got it, but the point is it wasn't written by Ramosha de Leon, obviously. It was written centuries earlier um, and was handed down in manuscript form from you know, Rebbe to student and was published for the world in the 13th century. Uh, this publishing to the world and this expansion from being handed over from Rebbe to Talmud to being kind of released to the world is hinted to in the Zaire itself. Now, one of the Ramban student, Rev Yitzchak Avako, was a little bit suspicious about whether Ramosha actually had found this ancient manuscript from Rav Shemba Yachai or if he was writing it himself. Um, he tells over that he asked Ramosha de Leon, you know, is this real or not? And Ramosha swore that it was, and he's going to go show it to Rav Yitzchak Avako. Um, but unfortunately, he died on the way. Ravitsa continued his journey to try to discover if it was real, and on the way met a man who claimed that Ramosha de Leon's wife told him that it was a fake, that Ramosha had faked it in order to make money. Uh, Ravitsa found this pretty hard to believe, so he continued his investigation. Uh, he was told by Ravitsa Alevi, who was a famed Kabbalist at the time, that of course it was real, and he himself had personally tested Ramosha in order to substantiate this. A student of Ramosha by the name of Ribyakov also swore by heaven and earth that it was real. Ravitsavyako found other scholars who claimed Ramosha de Leon had an authentic original in his possession, and that the only reason his wife lied about it was because she was afraid of being punished for selling the original for very little money, uh, just as parchment to be reused. So because she was afraid that somebody would yell at her, she decided to lie and say, no, it wasn't real in the first place. But all the Kabbalists of the time accepted it. Now, Ravitsavyako's story kind of ends there. He never really says whether he figured out or not if it was real, but it's important to point out that he does, from then on, refer to the Zaire as the Zaire that was written by Rib Shimon Bar Yachai. But this is already the 13th century. We skipped a little bit. Let's get from the Gemara up till the 13th century. So the Ramban, in his commentary to Beratius, Perak Hay, Pasuk Beis, he quotes Rav Shviragon giving a Kabbalistic shot and saying, and Rav Shviragon said, sorry, I can't give over the secrets of my summer kava. Um, that there's a letter from the Shari Tshuva, which is, and the Tshuva Sagainim, which testify that both Rav Hai and Rav Shiragon were Bali Kabbalah. Uh, Rav Sajigain, who wrote a parish on Sefer Yitzir, was also part of the Messiah, and Rav Haigain references a Chalais and explained the story of the Pardes. Um, and as we saw, actually mentions that the, the Mizmar and Tehillim of Tzadi Aleph is meant to protect those who delve into Meisimer Kava. Uh, pretty clearly, he was also part of this chain of Meisimer Kava. He was part of the chain of Kabbalah. 
uh, Rabbi Yehuda ben Barzilai, who lived in the early 11th century, was an author on the commentary of Sefer Tzir. He was also part of this tradition. Rashi and the Bali Taisvis were very clearly part of this tradition. Uh, Rabbeinu Yaakov, one of the Bali Taisvis, actually wrote Shut Menashemayim, which was a series of Shailas and Shuvas that were revealed to him from a Malach. Perhaps the most well-known Kabbalist was the Ramban, who lived in the early 13th century, obviously based much of his Chumash commentary on Kabbalah. Uh, Rav Yitzhak Saginar lived from 1160 to 1235 in France. He was taught by his father, Avram ben David, who was the Ravid, perhaps most famous for his commentary on the Rambam, where he attacks certain places where he disagrees with the Rambam, and was also a well-known Kabbalist. He was taught by his father, Rav David Abishiva, and his father-in-law, Rav Avram ben Yitzchak, who wrote the Sefer Eshkol, another Kabbalistic Sefer. Uh, Rav Ezreal Ibn Ibrahim, another student of Rav Yitzchak Saginar, was also a famed Kabbalist, and according to Sefer Yuchsin, he taught the Ramban. Now, in the Sefer of Vaidus Kaidish, written by Rav Meir Ibn Gabay, another Kabbalist, uh, he was a later Kabbalist in the 1480s, so he wrote that this entire chain, from David Av Bezdin, to the Ravid, to Rav Yitzchak Saginar, to Azreel and Ezra, to the Ramban, they all had Gilum, they all had revelations from Elio Navi, who taught them uh, Maisamar Kava, who taught them Kabbalah. Rav Yitzhak Saginar's nephew, uh, Rav Asherman David, he wrote the Sefer HaYichud and other Kabbalistic Svarim. Uh, Rabbeinu Bachi ben Asher, obviously a very famous Kabbalist, he died in 1340 in Spain. He wrote a commentary based largely on Kabbalah, and he was a student of the Rajba, who was another Kabbalist. So the, the Rishinim, most of the Rishinim who you know of, um, they're definitely in that area, in Spain, France, uh, those Rishinim were largely either knew Kabbalah themselves or had Rebbeim who knew Kabbalah, and these are all very important people in our tradition. Now, it's important to point out that when you have so many Kabbalists of different schools that are all in these areas, so if a Sefer of Kabbalah comes out and gains widespread acceptance, that's probably because the Sefer is espousing the same Kabbalah or a Kabbalah that could be understood by the people of this tradition. Now, there's another famous school of Kabbalah, the Hasidic Ashkenaz. Um, they're from Germany. Uh, Rav Aaron ben Shmuel Hanasi of Baghdad, he lived in the mid-19th century, so around 850. He brought teachings of Kabbalah from Iraq to Italy and to Germany, and this ended up in Rabbi Huda Hasid, who was taught Kabbalah from his father, Shmuel Hasid, um, and he passed it on to Eliezer HaRakech, the author of the Rakech, again, another Kabbalist. The Rikanti was another Kabbalist who lived in the 13th century, another famous uh, Rishon who was also part of this chain of Kabbalah. Now, the Ibn Ezra, who lived in the uh, early 12th century, he quotes Shir Kaima, which is a section of the Chalais, which was obviously a very Kabbalistic work, and he often quotes Saidais to explain the Pesukim. He quotes, you know, these secrets and says, you know, this is something that I'm not going to be able to explain, but this explains the Pesuk based on this site. So the Ibn Ezra, although known as a rationalist, was also part of the chain of the Kabbalah. Uh, the Sefer Chinuch was one who was not part of this chain of Kabbalah, but he in numerous places references the tradition of Kabbalah and pretty much bows to it. So, for example, in Mitzvah Shin Chav Dalit, or 324, he says, This is how I would explain it according to the simple understanding. But I do believe, but I understand that the Mekubalim have deep secrets about the mitzvah of Lulav and the Shalashaminim. So even though he didn't have it himself, he obviously believed in it, and he knew that there existed in his time Mekubalim who had the Saidas, who had the tradition from the Gemara through the Gainim up till his time in the Rishanim. Uh, again, also in Mitzvah 98, uh, Tzadiches, he says, 
although I'm just writing what appears simply in my mind, I'm doing this Hashem Shemayim, but I understand that the Mekubalim have a deeper, uh, more Yisaitistic understanding of these Inyanim. Rav Chazai Kreskas is another Rishon who was not part of the tradition, but also mentions that this tradition did exist, is in Arashem, Dalad Zion, or 4-7, where he says that Im Kabbalah If this concept is Kabbalah, in other words, if it is part of the tradition, then we will accept it with, uh, you know, a shining face. But he obviously didn't have the Kabbalah, but he accepted that there was this Kabbalah existing at the time. Now, Mirz Hashem, we will be discussing in the next podcast about whether the Rambam had the Kabbalah or not. But I just want to make a quick point about the Rambam and his Kabbalah. As we've already mentioned, Kabbalah is a very complicated topic where if you don't have the tradition, you won't understand it and nothing can be taken literally. In fact, again, all the Kabbalah, before they write their Svarim, they explain, don't, if you don't understand what I'm saying, in other words, if you don't, aren't part of the tradition, do not make your own conclusions from this. That's, that's not what I want you to do. I'm giving over a particular idea. If you don't understand it, you're not going to be able to understand. The Ramban says it's literally impossible to understand this if you don't are not part of the Kabbalah. So, assuming the Rambam did not have Kabbalah, or anybody who did not have the Kabbalah, anything they say about Kabbalah should be completely discarded, because obviously, if we're trying to figure out what the truth is, and one person does have the tradition and one person doesn't, you obviously take the one who does have the tradition over the one who doesn't. Uh, That should go without saying, but obviously, in academic Judaism, quote-unquote, that is not the assumption they take. And if you read their literature, these people who don't understand Kabbalah at all, they'll say, oh yeah, the Rishonim, there's like 17 different versions of Kabbalah, and everybody had different things, because this guy says this, and this guy says that, and obviously taken literally, you know, all of them thought that God was physical, which is like exactly what the Gemara the Gainim, the Rishinim, all warn about learning Kabbalah, that if you don't understand it, you're going to think that God is physical, and therefore don't learn it if you don't know what you're talking about. But obviously, that would take a little bit of humility, which is not an area which, you know, most academics show any proclivity towards. The point is, if it's something that the Mekabalim, the people who are part of the tradition, are saying makes sense, then it probably makes sense. And obviously, you should trust the people who are part of the Messiah, who are telling you that it makes sense, and not the people who are not part of the Messiah, who are saying, I don't understand this, therefore it doesn't make any sense especially in an area where the entire tradition is warning you, if you are not part of the Kabbalah, you are not going to understand it, and it's not going to make sense to you. So amongst the early Achreinim, after the Rishonim, you have Meir Ibn Gabay, who is the author of Vedas Akadosh, which we quoted earlier. He was a late 15th century. The Radvaz, a very early Achrein, was actually one of the Rebbeim of the Arizal. Now, we have to understand something about this time, which is that pretty much all of the Gedalim of Klyasrael had all moved to Tzvas. Uh, this includes Rav of Kaira, the author of the Beis Yosef and the Shulchan Aruch, his student, the Al-Sheikh, uh, Ramaisha Kedarva, the Ramak, his cousin, Rav Shlomo Al-Kabetz. Uh, these were all Kabbalists who live in Tzvat. The Mabit, the Balcharedim, and the Maritz were also in Tzvats at the time. Uh, there were other Gedalim who were all in Tzvats at this time. This was one of the greatest gatherings of Gedalia Tyra in one area of all time. This is why it was that area that almost restarted Smicha. This is the great Smicha controversy. This started then because they felt that they had enough Gedalim in one area that they could re-establish Smicha. Now, having this many Gedalim in one area allows the next step in the chain of Kabbalah, which is the Arizal. Uh, it was during this area that the Arizal introduced Lurianic Kabbalah, which is the Kabbalah of the Ari. As we mentioned, the Radvaz was the Rebbe of the Arizal, and he taught him both the hidden parts of Tyra, as well as Nigla, as well as the revealed aspects of Tyra, uh, Halacha, Gemara. The Arizal also studied under Rebetzal Ashkenazi, who's the author of the Shittim Kubetzas. Now, the Arizal at that time got a hold of the Zairi, and he secluded himself from eight years, uh, getting el- revelations from Eliyahu and studying the Zair. Now, the Radvaz, who also settled in Tzvata time, 
warned that Rizal not to teach Kabbalah in public. However, later, the Radvaz recanted this after receiving a sign from heaven that he had erred in this ruling. So the Arizal didn't like come out of nowhere. He was taught by some of the greatest Gedalim of the time, some of the greatest Ahreinim, the Shittim Kabetzas, the Radvaz. He studied the Zayar for eight years before coming back out into public and starting to teach Kabbalah. Now, Reb Chaim Vital, who was a student of the Arizal, he published most of the Arizal's work. Uh, he lived from 1543 to 1620, and pretty much all of the writings of the Arizal come from him. Now, again, the Arizal is coming in to Tzvas, a young man. At the time, the Ramak, Reb Moshe Kedorva, is the undisputed master of Kabbalah. In this area are the giants, the masters of both Nigla and Nistar. And yet they all unanimously accepted the Arizal as the master of Kabbalah and accepted Lorianic Kabbalah. So the chain of Kabbalah is very, very clear. It starts from Maishar Benu Gennet Harsinai, goes through the era of the Nevi'im until Yechaskel, the final Navi, gives over Maishar Merkava, his final Nevuah, which allows us to learn the secrets of Nevuah, the secrets about Hashem. This tradition is carried on through the Tanayim, who wrote down Svarim of Kabbalah, Sefer Abayr, the Echalais, Sefer Yitzira, the Zayar. The tradition is kept alive through the Amorayim, through the Ga'inim, through the Rishainim. Finally, the Arizal expounds the teaching of Kabbalah in a way that's even more accessible to more people. And this is why Kabbalah is such an accepted, integral part of Judaism, of the oral tradition. And those who disparage or question the authenticity of the Kabbalah that we have are questioning and disparaging the authenticity of our tradition, our oral tradition that extends from us all the way back to our Sinai. Thanks for listening to another edition of Jewish Thought Flow. Hopefully next time we'll have Avi back on, returning to the podcast. Again, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, compliments, please feel free to reach out at jewishthoughtflow at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a WhatsApp link, which will be linked in the episode description. Uh, feel free to reach out. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Jewish Thought Flow.